morning, everybody. Let's just commit this time to God. Lord, I pray that as we come to your word, it truly would be some time that we give to you. Time in which we hear from you, that we are built up by you, sometimes maybe broken down by you. But whatever happens, Lord, we pray that it would be your time and your glory. In Jesus' name, Amen. Well, our text this morning is, unsurprisingly, from the book of Ephesians. We're in chapter 5, verses 13 and 14. If you could please turn there now. Well, I'm sure that there are many of us here who attended the dawn parade on Anzac Day. And um, I was there too as a member of the Wanganui Male Choir. I was um, one of those who helped to lead the singing of the national anthems and so on. And at our Tuesday night practice, the week before, we were briefed on where to stand and what time to be there and so on. But there was a particular emphasis made on being sure to bring a small torch so that we could see our song sheets. And for sure, that was good advice because particularly I don't know the words of the Australian National Anthem very well. And since we were standing behind the lectern that was used by various dignitaries to address the gathering, uh, we had a very good view of how well they were prepared or not. And it was surprising to notice how many of them had neglected to bring a torch. And they hurriedly had to borrow one from somebody before they could start to speak. Imagine how foolish they would have seemed if no one had had a light for them. They might have prepared a very eloquent and moving speech and been immaculately dressed in their finest suit or uniform but it would all have been for nothing without a single light. You know, one of the many things that we take for granted, out of the many things that we take for granted, I suspect that the daily rising of the sun is actually quite close to the top of the list. And yet, without its light, life would be extraordinarily difficult, wouldn't it? We need light for so very many things in our physical life. And so it is with our spiritual life too. And this is what we will hear today as we continue to study Paul's explanations of the light of God here in Ephesians 5. Let's read then. And I'll start in verse 8. For you were once darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of light. For the fruit of the Spirit is in all goodness, righteousness and truth finding out what is acceptable to the Lord. And have no fellowship with the unfruitful works of darkness, but rather expose them, for it is shameful even to speak of these things which are done by them in secret. But all things that are exposed are made manifest by the light, for whatever makes manifest is light. Therefore he says, Awake, you who sleep, arise from the dead, and Christ will give you light. Now this first verse that we're going to be dealing with, verse 13, has some slightly obscure language that we don't usually use these days. But all things that are exposed are made manifest. 
What does this word manifest? You know, I, I guess you can tell, but I like words a great deal. But I confess that I had to go to the dictionary for this word manifest. And I found that it simply means easily noticed or perceived, obvious or plain. Well, that's made this verse manifest then. That all things that are exposed are made manifest or obvious by the light. For whatever makes things manifest or obvious is light. Right. We can go and have tea now. We all understand. Sorry, that would be nice, but we do have a way to go. The first thing to bear in mind is that although I have started with verse 13 today, it's not actually a clear break in the text, because Paul's just continuing an argument that he began right back in verse 8. And the only reason that we have begun here is that a proper discussion of the whole pericope in one go would mean a sermon that is longer than is humanly possible to bear. Yes, I know that some of you are thinking that this is already likely to be the case. However, the most important link is back to verses 11 and 12, where the instruction is that dealing with the most shameful sins means very deliberately, possibly even brutally exposing them, since they are the sort of things that we dread to even talk about. Well, the first word that follows is, but. It's a, it's a tiny little word, doesn't look very important. But it's like a wall in the text that divides one state from the other. Just, in this case, darkness from light. And whenever we see this word but, we must pay attention to it because we are going to find a solution to a problem. It never means that through a negotiated, peer-reviewed process of mediation, a risk-managed, mutually acceptable compromise was found. It means that the problem is going to be fixed. There might be some pain along the way, but it will be fixed and it will be fixed properly. So, watch out for our friend but when you read your Bibles, because it is always followed by a solution. So what is but going to explain for us today? Well, many years ago I started racing cars, and I've had a go at most kinds of four-wheel motorsport, but the very first type I tried was at an oval circuit, just like we have at Ocean View here in Wanganui. And since the, the type of racing there positively encouraged violent collisions, the track was surrounded by a thick wall of wooden railway sleepers that protected the public from flying cars and bits of cars. The thing was that hitting it was never good for your paintwork, but actually hitting it was never really an option. So we had a saying that there were two types of races. There were those who had hit the wall and there were those who were going to hit the wall. Well, hidden sin is like that too. All of us here are in one of two conditions. Either we have either had to or we will have to deal with this problem of hidden sin. When it happens, there are quite a few, few ways that we can try to live with it. We can, well, we can pretend that it's not there. We can ignore it and hope it will go away on its own. We could try to hide it with some bright and jolly paint, but the problem is that the corrosion always carries on under the surface once it has started. And most, unfortunately, sometimes we feed and surrender to it, rationalising that, well, we're forgiven anyway, or maybe you say, I'm just too weak, or, hey, 
if it feels good, then it's good to do, isn't it? Right? This is not the sense or the solution that we're given here. As I've already said, the word but requires a complete change of direction. And so when we read all as the very next word, we must understand it as just that. It doesn't mean nearly or not quite, but it means all, everything. The truth is that no matter what kind or amount is there, we can never ever expect to continue to live with hidden sinfulness and continue to grow in either our relationship to God or our likeness to Christ. It just can't and won't happen. If we want to have that precious closeness with the Lord and to see our characters grow in grace and love, then we need to make these sins visible so that the light of Jesus can show them for what they are and then they can be dealt with. They must all be made manifest, as our verse says. The Greek word that is used here for exposed can also be read as become visible. That's its literal meaning. But it actually carries with it a much deeper meaning than that because it is linked to this word manifest. The exposure that's being spoken of here is more than merely to appear like, oh, there you are. That reveals only the outside. A person may appear in a false guise or without a disclosure of what they really are, but to be manifested is to be revealed in one's true character. We get to see the real deal in the big picture. So what we're looking at here is, like all good dancers, a two-part tango. And as with the journey of sanctification, this is cooperative work between us and God. We expose the sin, and then he provides the holy light to manifest what it truly is so that it can be dealt with. You know, I could pick a book up off the shelf and show it to you, but you won't really know what's inside until you open it up in the light and you read it. And this is what we can understand when we read here that what is exposed is made manifest by the light. Like those folk who were making speeches at the Anzac Day commemoration, we too need some illumination to read the book. It concerns me a little though that after hearing this talk about exposure, that some might have the impression that it is possible to hide things from God. (laughs) Quite the opposite is true. Secret sins on earth are just open scandal in heaven. God sees and knows everything that we do and it is foolishness to imagine that we can ever conceal even the smallest, the very tiniest detail from him. I think this begs a question then. If God does know everything, well, why is it necessary for us to expose sins, to confess and make them open? Once we're saved, why can't we just get on with our lives willy-nilly and let God mop up the consequences internally with no bother to us? I mean, he knows everything. Well, I believe that aside from the clear fact that Scripture requires us to confess our sins, there are at least three good reasons I can think of, and I'm guessing you'll think of more. The first one is that we need to confess just as a reminder. The vast swathe of human history that's contained in Scripture, particularly in the Old Testament, 
that amply demonstrates that humans have an absolutely appalling tendency to forget about sin and God if we're left to our own devices. Israel did this again and again. And we are fooling ourselves if we think that we are any better today. The discipline of regular confession reminds us both of our weakness and of our need for the love and mercy of God. Secondly, something extraordinarily sweet and marvelous has been done for us by our Savior. Surely, surely we should not despise some effort of service in return. And thirdly, although we cannot see the stain itself, sin is a thing. It exists. It was created by an act, and therefore it needs an act to undo it. A kind of a, every action has an equal and opposite reaction thing. And fortunately, insofar as wiping the actual offense of the sin away from God's perspective is concerned, that's not something we can ever do by ourselves. And therefore that specific work was provided for by Jesus who, despite being God, died on the cross to make payment for our sins once and for all. And thanks to him, that offence slate was wiped clean. However, that doesn't absolve us from all responsibility. We need to act too. And one way of doing this is without mouths. The Bible tells us that confession has great power. And I'll prove it. Here's a few scriptures about confession, which means, in a broader sense, about speaking. First John 1.9 If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we confess our sins, we must tell God what we have done wrong. We must take responsibility and accountability. And when we do so, then he will Forgive us. Now, confession might at times be a solitary thing that we do, but it also is something that we can do together with fellow believers. We can act together to bear each other burdens. James 5.16 Confess your trespasses to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. The effective, fervent prayer of a righteous man avails much. When our hearts are right with God, there is great power in confession both for ourselves and for our brothers and sisters in Christ. But of course the ultimate confession is that God is. And that will be one that every believer will make and ultimately every created being will make. Philippians 2.10 At the name of Jesus, every knee should bow of those in heaven and of those on earth and of those under the earth and that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. We cannot underestimate the power of confession for breaking the power of sin, proclaiming the gospel and then glorifying God. In fact, when I was preparing for this sermon and I did a search for the word confess in the Bible, it turns out that although we might most often connect it to the idea of sin, its most frequent use in the New Testament is actually around the idea of proclaiming the gospel and proclaiming Christ. Whichever way it is used, we cannot say exactly why the Lord has made confessions so powerful. 
And we may never understand his purposes because they are far above ours. But we can clearly see the need for and the effect of speaking what we believe. It is so important that we continuously hold up our end of the arrangement as we are reading about today, that we both confess our sins so that God can make them manifest by his light and be dealt with, and that we confess Jesus' lordship so that it can be made manifest in other people's lives. And let us be clear. It is only the Lord who makes things manifest. It is his light alone that exposes sin and banishes its darkness forever. It is he alone who saves. There is no other power and no other name that can do so. And we do not need any human or any other intermediary for the forgiveness of sin and the gift of eternal life. Only the precious blood of Jesus and the honest utterance of our mouths. Well, this is the key part of Paul's overall encouragement to walk as children of light, isn't it? And if we are so, if we are children of light, then <laughs> why would we ever be afraid to open ourselves to the light of God? Believers are forgiven their sins completely and utterly. We have nothing to fear from openness. In the book of Jeremiah, chapter 31, where we can first read of God's new covenant with mankind, which is fulfilled in Jesus, we understand today as being saved. Right back where it all started, the Lord makes this promise. He says, No more shall every man teach his neighbor and every man his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they all shall know me, from the least of them to the greatest of them, says the Lord. I will forgive their iniquity and their sin. I will remember no more. Amazing. If God says that He has forgotten our sins, it means that in all, as in all things, He has done so perfectly. There will never ever be a case of us being confronted by the Lord laughing and saying, Ha ha, I fooled you. Actually, I've kept a note of all the bad stuff in this little book in my back pocket, and now you're going to pay. It just won't happen. Praise the Lord for his mercy towards all those who call on his name for their salvation. So what we are reading here is a very practical advice on one of the things that we ought to routinely do as a believer. Keep short accounts with the Lord. Confess your sins to him. Repent. Be open to him and he will certainly bless your walk and your work. Remember that Jesus' advice to his disciples concerning the Lord's Prayer was to pray, how often? Daily. Our Father who art in heaven, forgive us our sins as we forgive those who sin against us. In the same way that we ought to be sharing our day with God and all the things we do, well, we ought to also be cleaning up the mess we make as we go along. There's no justification or profit in storing up our sins for just before communion once a month. Confess them and forget them as the Lord has promised us in a daily discipline. Before we leave this topic and while we are on the subject of forgetfulness, I think it's worth a reminder 
that when we do get to stand before God in judgment, I think we're going to be in for a surprise. Some of the sins that we're going to hear about will be surprising to us because we didn't know or notice that we were committing them. And with that in mind, it is wise to take the example of King David who prayed in Psalm 19.12. Who can understand his errors? Cleanse me, Lord, from secret faults. He's asking God here to cleanse him from the sins that David just didn't know about. I know that sounds a little bit weird, but a really thorough spiritual tidy-up will need to include us asking God to forgive us for the sins that we didn't know we've committed. And that might seem to be a little inconsistent with what I've just said about his forgetting all of our sins. It might sound like we ought to be motivated by fear to just, you know, neaten up the verges of all our lives, to get those little wheel things out and go along and get rid of the extra grass. But I think if we look through the general tone of the psalm here that includes this advice, I, I believe we'll find that it is neither inconsistent counsel or an action that's motivated by fear. How does Psalm 19 start? It starts with this great sentence of praise. The heavens declare the glory of the Lord. And it goes on further to speak about how creation reveals God and to praise his law, his testimony, statutes, commandments and judgments for their positive effects on mankind. In verse 11, there is a clue to David's motivation for being clean from sin. I'll paraphrase it. There is great reward in holding to the Lord's ways. And the final verses contain David's confession. So he's, he's not afraid. Instead, out of a recognition of the Lord's purity and holiness and righteousness, he just wants to be as clean as he can be, to please the one who has done so much for him. Don't you think those are excellent motives? Ones that all of us here could profitably share? Let's move on. Does anyone here know what heliotropism is? Any takers? Heliotropism? Oh yes, I thought there would be a few. Good. And I, actually I bet that all of us know what it is, just not the flash name. You see, heliotropism is the name given to the way that plant parts follow the sun through a day or a season. And they do this through a very clever mechanism of changing the pressure inside some of the plant cells on one side of the stem so that they get longer or shorter. And this pushes or pulls the flower and the leaf in the right direction to follow the sun. Well, why does this happen? Well, there's quite a few theories about this, but none of us actually are of any interest today. What I want us to focus on right now is that idea of the flower continuously moving in such a way that the light of sun always falls fully on it. What do you think your life would look like if you lived this way? Always holding your innermost being up to God's full light, wherever you are. Do you think that you would have a closer relationship with him than you do now? Do you think that you would have more peace and fulfillment in your life? If your answer is yes, 
what are you waiting for? I can guarantee that this particular light is always fully on. And it is absolutely everywhere, so it is very easy to find. Turn your face to the Lord and he will bless you and he will keep you. So far, we've spoken mostly about the personal effects and implications of exposure to God's light, but we haven't said much about what that illumination means for those around us. Surely a light of so much power should not and cannot be hidden. The moon shines at night and it gives us light. It is true, but not because any power of its own. We all know that it is just the reflection of the sun's rays that we are seeing. In the same way, when we confess the Lord through our words and deeds, we reflect his light all around us. And what is around us? In very general terms, the answer would have to be darkness, because the world is mostly lost in sin and in the grip of Satan. So we have a very important work to do. Not only does God's light manifest the good things about being a child of God, but it also manifests the bad things about not being so. Part of the believer's work here on earth is to light up the area around them in a spiritual sense so that everyone can see the evil deeds that are being done there, yes, but also the good things that come along with that light. As long as there is darkness... You can hide in it. You can get away with almost anything. But in the light, it's different. It's impossible to hide. And so we must be the reflection of God's light for this purpose. We can do this both passively and actively. Passively in the sense that if we conduct our daily lives with high personal standards of moral and practical excellence, and that just means that what we say and what we do is consistent with God's commandments, then by example, people will see and know what is right. And that's just simple everyday stuff like not lying or stealing or cursing, being gracious instead of angry, working hard at whatever we do because we are doing it for the Lord. But then we may also be active. We may intervene when there is injustice. We may speak up when evil is done or we might refuse to participate in wrongdoing. You see, all believers must do this work. All believers can do this work and all believers will benefit from this work. And above all, God will be glorified by this work. And I, of course, can speak this way because I am perfect in every single way. No. You know that I'm not perfect. And I know that no one here is perfect. But that's really a very poor excuse for not trying. We honour the Lord by our every effort, no matter how tiny it is, that is made for his precious, precious gift of salvation. And we do have the opportunity to do so every waking moment of every day. Surely, there can be no finer way to spend our strength. But, 
do we do so? If we think that the Lord is blind to our slothfulness, then we are mistaken. And this is why we read in verse 14. Therefore he says, Awake, you who sleep, rise from the dead, and Christ will give you light. Now there are some commentators who believe that this statement only refers to the unsaved. And it's undeniable that it is still true if we read it in this way. Because those who are not saved are indeed dead unless they are raised to life by Christ and given his light. But when we think about the broader context of the book of Ephesians, which is definitely a letter written to Christians, it makes most sense to understand this verse as a major wake-up call to Christians. It is a reminder not to fall back to the ways of the unsaved who are dead and factually useless and hopeless for God's purposes. What is your own answer to this call? Are you sleeping? You know very well that I'm not a pastor, but I have attended a number of pastors' meetings over the past few years, and one topic of conversation that can pretty much be counted on to come up at any one of these assemblies is the problem of nominal Christians. Those who come to church who say they are Christians, they might look like Christians, but the problem is they do not participate. They just kind of lurk around on the fringes. When this is the conversation, what is being said about these sleepers? Does the average pastor wish they were just dry up and blow away so that they can get on and enjoy the members of the flock who are engaged? No. I've never heard that said. The fact is, like any good shepherds, pastors' hearts ache for these people. They long to restore them to full health. They have a vision of the potential of a church. And here I very definitely mean a church as a body of people, not this, this building. A church that bursts with vital and energetic laborers for Christ. What might such a body accomplish? How could the world ever prevail against it? However, the reality is most often a fraction of that possibility and the blame for that lies squarely with each one of us. The Lord has saved us. He has prepared good works for us. He has equipped us all with physical and mental talents and abilities. He dwells in us always as a helper in the form of the Holy Spirit. He hears and he acts on our prayers. His commitment is complete. And yet what have we done? All often, all too often we have just rolled over and pressed the snooze button. So, what to do then if you recognize yourself here? It's very simple. Wake up! Wake up! Friends, arise from the dead and Christ will give you light. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, thank you
for your light. It is so hard to blunder around in the darkness. It is so painful. It is so frightening. You could have left us there and yet you graciously gave us this bright light. Oh Lord, I pray that we would never ever waste it. That we would be beacons of that light for the world and for your glory. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.